welcome to episode number 178 of the Pioneering Today podcast. Today is an exciting episode because we are talking about two things that can bring us immense joy in the garden. And the first one is less weeds. Can I get an amen? And the second, which is a little bit newer for me, is how to create beauty with using heirloom flowers in and about not only your homestead flower beds, also in the vegetable garden, but creating a place of beauty and haven wherever you look on your homestead. Now, as you will hear in this upcoming episode, I do not have a ton of experience with heirloom flowers. The way that I grew up and the way that we have gardened for decades now has been mainly focused on food production. That's been our main goal is to make sure we are getting food out of our efforts and our garden. But about two to three years ago, I really decided that I wanted to bring in more beauty and to do so with flowers and to have things in the flower beds and in our gardens here on the homestead. Now, some of those flowers have medicinal purposes, so they are things of beauty, and they also are edible and have medicinal purposes, which is pretty amazing. But I made it a goal that things didn't have to have the sole purpose of feeding us or working in our natural medicine garden to have a home on our homestead, that they could just be for the pure pleasure of looking at it. So that's what we're going to be diving into on today's episode. You are in for a huge treat. So let's get right to our guest and the topic at hand. Hey guys, today's podcast episode, I am super excited to introduce you to my guest. And one of the reasons is, is because we actually homestead in the same state. We both have a love of espresso all things gardening, and Jesus. And so I'm like, how have we not connected before? So I know that if we've got this much in common and y'all are listening to the podcast and have hung out with me for a while, you're going to have a lot of similar things in common. So Shay Elliott, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah. How have we been like just shooting past each other in the night is beyond me, but I love it. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. And I love your photos. So I am one of those people like on Instagram that my feed is filled with beautiful things. And for me, beautiful things happen to be mason jars, flowers, gardens, cows, the typical homesteading thing. Absolutely. Right. And I love your photos are just so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with everybody. Yeah. It's been a learning process. There are many times I go back when the Instagram feed started or when the blog first started and I shudder a little bit at the time what I thought was great photography, (laughs) but it was one of those learn on the job sort of skills that it came with time. (laughs) Amen. As does, I think, most things in life, especially the things in life that are worth keeping at. Yes, I look back at a lot of earlier things and kind of shudder. As we move into spring, talking about looking back at things and shuddering, at the time of this recording, we are just at the beginning of May. And for us, that is pretty much full on gardening. So we're getting all the seedlings are going out, direct sowing. It's that lovely time where everything is fresh and it's small and you're putting everything in and it's one of my favorite times of year. But you sometimes look back as you get farther into the gardening season, you're like, man, I really wish I had done a few things differently when I was putting all of this (laughs) loveliness in, especially when it comes 
to the workload that can come when you're growing a lot of crops. So I thought it would be really fun today to talk about some of the things that we've both learned throughout the years and throughout many gardening season to make sure that we're taking some steps now to just help that workload become easier down the road when we're putting our crops and stuff in. I thought that would make a great topic. And I figured... Between the two of us, we'll probably we make I plenty of mistakes. Probably, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm excited because I'm like I'll probably glean tips from you and vice versa, and then of course for all the listeners. So I thought it would be yeah. a great topic. One so, of my probably biggest mistakes looking back that I am definitely taking into account going forward this spring is I think I kind of held on to the idea of being a purist in the garden, so I rejected using weed tarp. <laughs> it sounds so silly to say, but man, I would have saved myself some serious work in the past. So last summer in particular, I have a little potager style kitchen garden right off of my kitchen. And so this is a kind of a traditional French style of garden that incorporates some flowers and some vegetables, and it's meant to be functional, but also decorative. So this isn't where we grow our huge market crops, but it's just a big kind of rectangle patch of dirt. And I was out there weeding that thing from sun up to sundown, basically all summer. And so as I stared at it this year, I thought it would actually be really helpful to create pathways and put down weed tarp and put down mulch and save myself just the backbreaking work of weeding all summer long. Do you use weed tarp? Has it entered your garden yet? Amen for one on not having to weed all summer long. I'm there with you. And I have used weed tarp in our more perennial beds, so not in the, the vegetable garden or really food production, but I've definitely used it in our perennial beds. And with the perennial beds, the weed tarp worked for about five years, and then mm-hmm. I started to get weeds through it. But to be fair, I wasn't really applying the mulch again every year as I needed to. Mm-hmm. And it was in a perennial spot where we have got a lot of wild blackberries, which are actually a noxious weed and you pretty Mm -hmm. much cannot kill those suckers. And Mm -hmm. so part of it was where I had put it down and just not taking a lot of upkeep care on it. So it definitely Mm -hmm. did knock the weeds back for that period of time. But long-term they came back up through it because I wasn't helping applying the mulch and they did come up through it over time, but it definitely Mm -hmm. knocked back the weeds in the first part, but I don't have it in our regular vegetable garden. Though this year in our annual vegetable garden, I will be doing a lot more mulching than I have done in years past to help suppress the weeds and and retain moisture. And I don't know about you guys, for the listeners, uh, Shane and I both live in Washington state. I happen to be on the west side of the North Cascade mountain range up in the foothills, and she's on the east side of the Cascade Mountain Range. So if you live in Washington State, you're totally going to know when we say, oh, you're on the east side and I'm on the west side. It's just kind of like local Washingtonian slang. But our weather here, especially the past three summers, even being in the rainy belt of the Pacific Northwest, we've had really drought and dry. Every year we've actually broken the record for the longest drought three summers in a row. I'm hoping it won't be this summer again. So I am really looking at using a lot more moisture control methods than I ever have in the past on retaining the moisture. In the past, we've had too much, but that's not really the case lately. So I'm looking at putting in a lot more mulch this year in our vegetable garden, especially. I already have used it in the perennial beds, but not so much in the vegetable garden. And I know that will help suppress weeds too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mulch is incredibly helpful. That was kind of the stepping stone for us of then going to the weed tarp and the mulch. And 
interesting you mentioned the Cascade Mountains because when we tell people that we garden in Washington, they think we must live in Seattle and thus <laughs> you know, we must be getting all this beautiful rain and mist and moss and we don't have any of that. On our side of the mountains, we're a desert climate. I mean, we the last last summer we saw a rain in May and we didn't see a rain again until September. So we wow. literally went all summer without any precipitation. Luckily we have a well so we could irrigate our gardens, but mulch is absolutely essential for keeping the soil workable and moist. And we, I mean, that's, that's a huge, when we learned how to garden with mulch, that was probably one of the biggest steps we took in terms of seeing success in the garden, just because of the weeds and the moisture. And then eventually, you know, what it breaks down to and feeds the soil. Yeah. Amen. So I have to say too, I'm going to do a little bit of backtracking because I'm super curious about this. You mentioned the French type of garden you have next to your kitchen. And I do want to talk about flowers because I am a recent convert as of two Ooh. years ago to Ooh. including flowers. Yes. In the actual vegetable garden. And I know you've got some, like I said, I've seen our pictures y'all. So I'm bring <laughs> this episode. For the market garden, now is that crops that you guys are growing and selling and taking to market or what's the difference between those two plots or yeah. gardens? We name our gardens just because when you live on a farm, it's easier to be like, oh, well that shovel's in this garden or it's in this area. So our potager is the garden that's right by our kitchen. Our market garden is one that we put in kind of at the upper part of the property and it's long like Jean-Martin Fortier style market rows. So they're 30 inches wide, 18 inch pathways between them. We don't actually sell any of the produce. Our goal has never been to have things to take to market. It's just to have enough to feed our family for the year. And so this is crops that we need a lot of in order to feed a family of six. So things like potatoes, tomatoes, green beans, onions, cabbages, you know, kind of your staple crops. So something like okra or lima beans, those are fun, but they're not, you know, they're not going to be feeding us into the depths of winter like these other crops are. The market garden is sort of reserved for those market style rows for mass growing, mass production of food. And putting in that garden completely changed the amount of food that we could grow because we'd always had this kind of potager style little plot and it was fun and you could grow you know five heads of broccoli here and maybe a teeny little patch of corn here and some celery over here but when you're actually trying to grow all of your own food you realize how much you eat and it's a lot we wanted to kind of break beyond just the novelty of growing something which was great and that worked for us for a while but then it was time for us to kind of up level. So that's kind of where the market garden came into place. And then we have our greenhouse gardens, which are purely for perennials and beautiful annuals and just for the enjoyment of having flowers. <laughs> no other purpose, okay. just beauty. Yeah. And, so I'm and glad to hear you converted. That's a good. Yeah. Yes. That's a good <laughs> I've totally converted. In fact, it's so funny because my mother lives up the road from us and has been watching my progress as I dive deeper and deeper into adding in flowers. And so she texts me yesterday and she's like, I'm yanking out this flower bed. What do you want from it? And so I'm ah. like, just hold on. I'll, I'll be down. I'll be down. <laughs> so I went down and, and I'm getting peonies. I'm super excited and bluebells and hostas and all kinds oh, of fun nice. stuff. So yeah, I'll be transferring those this week. So I'm excited, oh, but I yeah, I, you're, 
so right when you're talking about what you're referencing to is your market garden. And thanks, because I always wondered, I thought, oh, well, maybe they do like a farmer's market or yeah, something. Yeah, no, they don't. Um, yeah, but it's true because that's our goal too. I tell you, we're like soul sisters because <laughs> that's our goal is to raise a year's worth of food as much as we can of each crop. And so we do quite a bit. So that's our annual vegetable garden. And then I actually have a high tunnel because typically we have so much rain here that the only way I could grow my tomatoes and my peppers without blight was to actually have them covered in greenhouse plastic. And so I've got that whole area where we grow all of our tomato plants for the year. And the majority of our peppers, a few peppers I'll throw out in the garden, but my tomatoes, I'm like, I am not taking any chance of getting blight right. on those <laughs> and wiping out the crops. So they're there. But yeah, when you begin to garden with your vegetables, especially, and your fruit, of course, and you're looking at it without just like, I'm just going to put in a garden this summer and we're going to have, you know, fresh things to eat, which is fabulous. And I am so happy to see so many people are doing that more and more. But when you look at it and you're planning your crops and you're saying, okay, I want to make sure that I'm growing a year's worth of this food. And that of, of course includes fresh eating, but it also is going to be preserving of those crops mm -hmm. too. And especially like when you were naming them off, what you grow for a year's worth of food, those crops that are important to you and your family may be different than someone else's because it's going to be based on your climate. And then mm -hmm. it's going to be, should be based on what your family likes to eat, honestly. Yes. <laughs> like, it's, <Absolutely>. I, yeah. <laughs> and it's, I think you know, that's actually a huge mistake that gardeners make is we go and we think, oh, these vegetables, plants look great. And oh, wouldn't it be fun to, you know, grow Brussels sprouts. But if nobody eats them, what's the point? So it's like, keep it simple. Keep it simple to what you're actually going to eat. That's yes. such a basic thing, but yeah. So growing what you eat is really important. And knowing, because sometimes you're like, okay, well, we love, so it's so funny that you say Brussels sprouts because we actually love Brussels sprouts. And I doubled <laughs> my Brussels sprouts that I've got out of the garden right now for when we harvest this fall, because it's one of our favorite things. But sometimes you're like, okay, well, I know that we love this crop, but how much of this crop do I actually need for a year's worth of food? And so guys, actually this entire episode, we will have as a full blog post and we'll have links to resources and all kinds of things. And if you haven't listened to my planning a year's worth of crops episode, we'll have a link to that, but you're going to want to grab that because I actually have a chart that has all of the vegetables and how much you need to plant per person. So that can help you out when you're trying to see like, gosh, how much of this do I actually need to put in for the year? So you can access today's entire episode. You just go to melissaknorris.com forward slash 178, because this is episode number 178. I think another important point on that is thinking about what food can I actually preserve in a way that we're, we'll want to eat it. So foods that store really well, for example, like something like cabbage, you can store in a cooler or in a root cellar all winter long for the most part, and it'll be fine. Or you can ferment it into something like kimchi or sauerkraut. So there's a lot of different ways that you can preserve it. But it's very much this lost art where if you don't preserve things, you know, even if you grow enough for a year, you have to be able to actually carry it through for a year, which is kind of opening up a can of worms in terms of skill levels and taste and cooking abilities. I mean, it's really a Pandora's box. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and that's one thing too, is that I look at it, I'm like, well, what are the ways that we can preserve this and the ways that we like it? Because there was years, especially in the beginning where I would can up like, oh my goodness, I don't know, like 50 pints of a relish 
well, I didn't eat that much of that. (laughs) So I had relish for years, which canned goods, I'm fine eating them because I know that I'm following updated safety, all that fun stuff. I'm fine rotating through our canned goods and some things I have for a couple of years, no problem. But I don't need a five years worth of one relish. That's just kind of silly. So and some of that you will, you'll tailor, but it's important when you're thinking of putting in those crops, I totally agree to think about how am I going to preserve this and am I preserving it in a way that we're actually going to be eating throughout the year and consuming it, not just so that it's sitting in the jar. Right, exactly. And, and that's always the slippery slope because it looks really pretty and you feel really productive when you make, like I think a perfect example for me is zucchini. We love to eat zucchini fresh. We love it on the grill. I have preserved it a thousand different ways. None of them we enjoy. <laughs> I have to, <laughs> my kids to eat a zucchini. I mean, they eat anything, but like there is a certain point where they're just like, let's just appreciate zucchini for what it is when we can get it and focus more on the preserved foods that we know we really, really enjoy. So. Yeah, I think that's a great tip. So I kind of want to circle back around to talk about the weeding thing, because I think when you think about gardening and when I talk to people about gardening, there's always the time constraint to being able Mm -hmm. to garden and to grow a lot of food. And probably when you talk about time, the biggest hurdle or the biggest complaint or issue people have is the weeding. Like I don't have time to weed or you think you do. And then all of a sudden, like the weeds take over and you feel like you're like, oh my goodness, you feel so overwhelmed. So what are some of your tips for, and of course, I think we're both very natural and organic minded. So I'm pretty sure your methods and mine are going to correspond to that really well. So no roundup is allowed. Let's just put that out there. Absolutely. (laughs) It just makes me shudder inside. No, definitely none of that. So the weed tarp has been really helpful for us. We have gravel pathways that sort of line through our flower beds and through our vegetable gardens. And so we put a weed tarp under there and then put gravel, which actually acts like a mulch on top of that. So that is really helpful for the pathways. We also do mulch any of the walkways in the gardens, the market style garden. Okay. So here's going to be my little soapbox moment on weeding because sometimes <laughs> this is a lesson I'm very much trying to drill into my children and weeding is the perfect way to teach it. You kind of just have to do the hard thing. You have to just get on your knees and get out your little trowel, and take your bucket and just spend time weeding. And it can be one of those things that brings you a lot of frustration and you look out and you see the weeds and it stresses you out. And honestly, I think that would probably be symptomatic of maybe a bigger problem. Maybe your garden is a little bit too big for you to manage well, which is fine. It's good to acknowledge that and to get it to a scale that doesn't stress you out. Because even if you're working your garden for production and for food and all that kind of stuff, it should still bring you joy. The reality is we have supermarkets in our day and age where we can go and we can get anything we want for a lot easier and a lot cheaper than you can do it yourself in some ways part of gardening and part of why we do what we do is because we love it. We love the connection with the soil. We love the process of watching things grow. We love the idea of producing something with our hands and putting that hard work into something is what makes the results of it so sweet. Having to preach this to myself as well, because there are often times where I go out and I just want my garden to look perfect and can it just be so? Well, no, it can't be. (laughs) It can't be that way. There's always going to be weeds. There's always going to be something that needs to be done in the garden. And part of becoming a gardener is learning to love the process of that. So, you know, we were talking earlier about thinning beets or planting carrots. 
Weeding carrots at this time of year is literally the most painstaking task you could ask a gardener to do. <laughs> it is horrible. They take forever to germinate. So these little fine hairs when they come, it's tedious. And when you're looking at a hundred foot row of carrots and weeds, you want to give up and you just want to be like, forget it. Let's just flame torch this whole thing. Uh, which actually is another method. Flame is a great method. But the reality is there's no substitute for just sitting down and plucking out the weeds. You know, and I look, I use it as a time of therapy. Honestly, Monty Don is a gardener. That's a huge inspiration to me. He doesn't do so much vegetable gardening, but he does a ton of flowers. And he got into gardening when he was really battling depression and anxiety. And he sort of learned to use it as a form of therapy for his mind. So that's kind of how weeding is to me. It's like, I get my espresso, maybe I listen to a podcast or a book on Audible, whatever it is, maybe it's complete silence, but I just got to sink in and do the hard thing without over being too overly simplistic about weeding. You can only manage it to a point and then you just got to, you just got to do it. Is yeah. that terrible news to bring <laughs> to bring to your listeners? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, because there is like no matter you can take a lot of measures, like we've said, like doing weed suppression, either using cloth, you can use cardboard layers of newspaper, and then putting some type of mulch on top, whether it be wood or rock. And in that suppression methods, you know, we're suppressing the weeds from getting light and from coming up. And that works. And it's so funny that you mentioned the flamethrower because we just did that this past week. And in fact, I filmed it. It's in editing mode and it will be up on my YouTube yeah. channel next week because that's another method we use. So there's lots of different things that you can use. It's going to help curtail the weeds for sure, but there is no such thing as a weed-free garden. And there always is going to be some type of actual manual weeding where you are pulling the weeds mm -hmm. from around your crops, though using a lot of these methods is going to reduce the amount of overall weeds that you have to deal with. And I found too, if I will block out some time, because a lot of us don't have, I mean, let's face it, everybody's busy. I don't care if you have a day job, if you're working from home, if you're a mom, you're homeschooling, whatever, everybody is super busy these days. And so gardening one is total therapy. It kind of forces me to slow down. But if I just set the timer and I'm like, okay, I've got 15 minutes before I have to head out the door for work. And this is when I was still working my day job, though I'm not anymore. And I would just set that timer and I'm like, okay, if I do 15 minutes a day, you'll be surprised at how much that adds up. I think a lot of time we look at something and we become overwhelmed and we build it up in our mind is a lot worse than it actually is. And if you just start to dive in and do the thing, you're going to realize, okay, like it was just built up in my mind in the kind of this procrastination. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great point. It's, it's like laundry. You know, if you don't do laundry for two weeks, all of a sudden you go down and you're looking at, you know, 30 loads of laundry. I have a lot of children. It's always <laughs> like 30 loads of laundry. But if I wash two or three loads a day, it's fine. It, it's not, it doesn't become a thing. That's a really good point because I'll often head out with my five gallon bucket and I just make it my goal like to fill the bucket twice before I make dinner. Maybe I'm just putzing around. Maybe I'm concentrating on a really bad part. But yeah, part of it's just manually pulling them and doing a little bit every day to maintain it. I do have to say that if you stay on it from the beginning, when the weeds are smaller, especially things that have those long roots like buttercups, which are my nemesis. I cannot stand buttercups. We don't have them here. Oh, don't tell me that. <laughs> 
I think they're definitely a rainy weather and they really <laughs> like wet soil. So as we get to the, towards more like the end of summer, they don't come as much, but like right now, and they send out runners. So they travel underneath the ground and they'll send out runners and then they don't have a long single tap root like a dandelion does, but they'll send down really long multiple roots. So they're just as hard to pull out because they have this really long deep root system. And you can tell I have been I have been pulling buttercups, y'all, for seven days, right? So I'm just... I don't know if I believe you. That sounds so pleasant. It sounds like a very charming little flower. Oh, they put up a really cute little yellow blossom with petals. So not like a dandelion, but they are yellow. Oh, but they're just... Yes, they, they will yeah. take over. The problem is, is they're so good at producing and being prolific that they'll take out a bed and totally smother it out. Yeah, yeah. Don't get on them right away. So, anyways, yeah. it um, sounds a lot like morning glory. We bet. I don't know if you oh, have, we, yes. you know, it's the same kind of thing where it goes underneath the soil, almost like a crabgrass. Yeah. And it will really suffocate things out. But I remember reading one time that I don't, I mean, I don't know if your garden is like this, but I found my gardens to be very much this way where I'll have one little section of the garden where something like thistles will be a problem. And then one little section where it's morning glory and one little section where it's crabgrass and like, you know which area of the garden and by which weed is prominent at the time. And I've heard that you have to stay on those weeds without letting any of them go to seed, at least for something like a thistle. Yeah. For seven years. You can't let any go to seed for seven years in order to actually rid the area of that particular weed. Oh, seven years. Okay. I haven't heard that. Um, we do have thistles and out in our pasture, actually, we have one area of our pasture. It's so funny that you say that because it's so true. We have one area of our pasture that's thistles. And so my son is now going on, well, he's actually 14 and my daughter's going on 10. And so we will let them. And yes, they have been totally trained on safety, but we give them machetes and we're like, you go do a <laughs> thistle deheading party. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, my kids, they've learned, you know, which ones are weeds and they'll always have a hand on one like this one. This one, can I pull this one? Because many a sweet little flower have been lost to little hands that overzealously helped. <laughs> yes, that is the case when they're little. Yeah. But it's so good because then by the time they reach a little bit older, like my kids are, they totally know what's what. And so you can be like, so that's how they, I'm like, okay, if you do so many minutes of weed pulling, then yeah. you get so many minutes of electronic time or whatnot. So it's kind of a really good trade-off. <laughs> That's true. That is another great weaning method is conning your children into doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It is good. But I do want to come back to the flowers because like I said, I'm just newly putting in lots of flowers into yes. the vegetable garden and stuff. And so tell me kind of the style that you use. I know you because can you tell I've totally stalked her Instagram feed, y'all? I feel like a stalker telling her this stuff, but I know that you use it's all out like, there. It's fine. <laughs> okay, good. I know you use a layering method with yeah. some of your flowers and that type of thing. So, kind of talk to us a little bit about that method because I'm super curious because I want to incorporate more in my own mm -hmm. bed. So, mm -hmm. so tell me. Sure. Okay. My affinity for flowers started because I worked at a floral shop, a high end floral and garden house through high school, through college, and even actually through a first, the first few years of our marriage. So I knew a lot of flowers once I finally decided to grow them. So I knew a lot of the names that I was looking for, but what that basically translated to is just going to Lowe's and just being like, oh, I know that flower. I know that flower and putting them in and hating it, oh, ripping no. it all out and starting again. It does take a little bit of time to sort of find your style, but 
our style of flowers now is very, you know, we call our house the cottage. And so it's very relaxed, very cottage style. So I don't know if your listeners are familiar with Tasha Tudor, but Tasha was a children's book illustrator who lived on the East Coast. And she grew amazing cottage gardens and, and did most all the work herself. And she was fantastic. But she was the one who kind of introduced me to this idea. She's passed away now, but her books introduced me to this idea of your garden really looking beautiful all year round, whether or not something is blooming. Mm. Then on top of that, there came a new book called The Layered Garden, and the author's name is slipping me at the moment. But but the same kind of a concept, it was like, you're, you're, you need to think about what you're planting in an area that will be there in winter, what will be there in spring, what will be there in summer. So the idea is kind of asking yourself the question, what's going to come next to this area? Because what I had found is I had built my gardens in a way, let's say, with a bunch of tulips and daffodils, which look beautiful in the spring, but then those fade. Yeah. What is then planted as the next layer in that same spot to be the next thing that comes forward? And when that passes after summer, what's going to be the next thing to come up in the fall or what structure is there? Maybe it's a red twig dogwood, or maybe it's just some sort of architectural feature, you know, some sort of trellis or rusty wheelbarrow. I mean, whatever your style is, what's going to be there to bring interest to that space through each of the seasons. And basically what this translates to is the gardener planting essentially four or five or six gardens in one, which sounds like a ton of work, but the reality is, you know, we can, so for example, my tulips and daffodils, a great way to bring interest to that area in the summertime is just to sow some zinnia seeds. You know, they're super easy, really, really easy to dry the flower heads to have seeds for the next year. So you can keep a ton of seeds, overplant those right over the tulips and daffodils so that when those fade, you instantly have this huge hit of annuals coming up, at least zinnias are annual in my zone, huge hit of annuals coming. And then when those pass, which, you know, they hold on through the fall, you know, then you kind of are able to, to think about the structure beyond that. So it's, it's a really interesting, it's almost like, like a lasagna sort of a method, you know, where this layer is going to take me this far, then this layer is going to take me this far. And it's completely changed the way that I saw the spaces. It's, yeah, it's, quite fantastic because there's always something going on. There's always something new and exciting coming. Oh boy. My brain's already gone. I'm like, okay, I've got the irises and they're getting ready to bloom, but then nothing comes in that spot after it. So now I'm like, okay, what am I going to put it? Yeah. Like my brain's already going with you. Yeah. And Zinnia, uh, same thing. Zinnias are an annual here for us as well. And so is calendula, but my calendula (laughs) went to seed last year because it was the first time I had planted it in my vegetable garden. So the great thing is all of those seeds are coming up. So I don't have to plant anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a really happy little self seeder. And a lot of the flowers that I plant, I do that intentionally with varieties that will self seed because I want it to look loved and kept, but very naturalized. I'm not, this is not like a stuffy, you know, Victorian estate garden. This is like, I want it to feel comfortable. So things like Black-eyed Susans will really go crazy. Ladies' mantle, hardy geranium, lupin. Um, I call it calendula, but calendula. There's always a thousand ways to pronounce these, isn't there? Amen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Those are 
are a lot of things that will, you know, you'll just notice them popping up all over the place. And sometimes they pop up in a good spot and you can just let them be and they'll naturalize. Sometimes you have to kind of dig them up and put them where you want them. But, you know, that's, it's a great way, A, to get free perennials, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Or to kind of get that more natural, layered, kind of slept in look a little bit. Depending gotcha. on obviously what your style is in your garden. Yeah, I am definitely not a super manicured type. I love fields of wildflowers right. and just like little secret pops. I love it when you're just, you know, walking out and you just happen to see there's a little pot of flowers. You're like, oh my goodness, where yeah. did that come from? Just, yeah, very naturalized. So I am curious though, especially with a bulb. So you've got bulbs like either the irises aren't really a true bulb, mm -hmm. but irises or daffodils and tulips. And then you seed, the zinnias or another type of annual, because they're growing in essentially the same spot, do you have to fertilize more? Or do you use more compost or do they just seem to be just fine? Or how does that work when you've got multiple things growing in the same spot kind of with the flowers? Yeah, that's a great question. So I am very unsystematic about such things. We have a little, a little small farm. So we have a dairy cow, we have sheep, we have rabbits, we've got chickens. All that to say, we literally have every type of manure we could possibly <laughs> for, and we have a lot of it. So we just will continually scrape the animal manure and we build this gigantic compost pile. I layer on as much as I can physically muster every fall okay. and first thing in the spring as soon as the snow melts. And that's what that's all I do. I don't measure it. I have no idea. I don't test it for anything. I never test my soil. I'm like the worst gardener in terms of following any kind of rules. I do add aged animal compost to all of my beds, vegetable and flower, twice a year. Okay. Right now we currently have chickens and we always have cattle. I don't have any pigs at the moment. So same thing. I do a compost pile and I add that to the vegetable garden and my perennial fruits, but see, I'm so new to the flowering yeah. phase. I feel like I don't ever even think about adding the, com I don't know why, duh, now that mm -hmm. we just had this conversation, but I don't ever add compost to my flower bed. So that's mm -hmm. something that I need to put into practice. So just good compost and that, and that just takes care compost. of it. Yeah. I mean, and then we always keep our flower beds mulched. So I actually use, and I've heard disputing evidence on this. So I, maybe you have experience with this. Every time we mow our lawns, we don't spray our lawn for anything. And my lawn is basically just kind of, you know, weird, odd grasses that sort of grow. But I take that mulch directly from the lawnmower bag and I sprinkle it in a thin layer, maybe a quarter inch or a half inch thick on my beds. And it dries up within just a few hours. Yeah. And then, it, and then it, we do that every week, every week we're continually spreading this grass. Now I've heard that that can spread weeds, that the grass can sprout. I've never seen anything close like that to happening in our gardens. So I don't know if it's the type, do you have experience with this? Am I totally off my rocker here? Because we found it to be a really great mulching method. Yeah, I think it depends on what is in your lawn, honestly, and then how dry or wet you are. You guys are, like Very you said, dry. more of a desert yeah. climate, right? And so when you put it out, yours is drying that fast, which is awesome. And so that's pretty much really going to help with any type of spreading of the weeds and getting it hot. Here, it depends on the time of year because like right now we can mow and my cut grass will stay wet for up to 48, depending on if we're getting rain or not. We're actually not getting rain right now, but we're still pretty good moisture level. So my cut grass will stay even just spread out. It'll stay dry for a couple of days at least. And I think mm -hmm. it depends too, like you said, on what kind of 
grass you have and what kind of weed seeds are in it. It's more in our pasture and it's encroaching a little bit on our lawn, but we have something called rattleweed, which would totally spread and take over a bed if you were to put it in it because it would dry up and then it would drop the seeds. So I think it really is dependent upon what you've got and knowing what's in your yard. And ours is just a total mix of different grasses, though we do have some weeds that have just naturally came in from surrounding areas in the pasture. So for us, it would depend on the section of lawn we were mowing and what it had in it. So I I think that's why Mm -hmm. you'll hear conflicting things because I think it works, it works awesome for you and it would work really well with some of our grass, which is part of the grass that I do put in our compost pile actually to add a lot nitrogen and to get it go down even mm-hmm. faster. But then there's certain sections I'm like, uh-uh, ain't touching that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally understandable. Totally understandable. Yeah. Whether or not it's grass or whether you use leaves or whether you use straw or bark or whatever it may be, you know, flowers, they like to be moist. They like nutrients that break down the soil. The worms like protection from the sun. So all the same things that our vegetables benefit from. You know, our perennial flowers really enjoy the same thing. So good compost, good mulch, consistent watering, you know, all the normal stuff. All the normal stuff. Okay. All the yeah. yeah. I have a feeling shopping carts for oh, flowers, girl. I'm coming to them. <laughs> no, it's, it is like a serious, serious problem. It's a real sickness, but I always tell my husband, it's not drugs. So you kind of can't get angry. <laughs> right. And it's not shoes. Like I know a lot of, you know, you'll hear a lot of women say like they have a shoe addiction. I'm like, no, not here. It's seed catalogs. And <laughs> I will say, you know, we moved into this house three years ago. We still have a lot to do. But when we first moved in, I kind of got the, are you crazy look when I was like, we're going to have a garden here. And then this area will be for this. And we have spent the last three years just in deep labor, working ourselves to the bone to create this area. And now that we're three years in, you know, when spring came and the perennial started to come up and a lot of the bones of the gardens were in place. There were many moments where we looked at each other and we thought this was totally worth it. When my husband yeah. said to me, like, I see now what we were trying, what you were trying to build. Like it, it makes sense now. And I don't think that homesteads, you know, whether you're growing vegetables, whether you have animals, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be ugly. I don't know. I don't know why we feel like if we're, ha- if we have animals or, you know, if we're growing purely for production, that things can't be beautiful. I think flowers are such a wonderful way to add that just layer of enjoyment and beauty for beauty's sake to enjoy our outdoor spaces and, you know, to enjoy our animals or our grazing grounds or our market beds or whatever it is. I mean, it's, you're going to love it. It's, it's a deep hole you're going in. I want you to know that like, there's a point of no return. I could see it because last year, like I said, last year, uh, the past two years, I should say, and especially last year was the first time that I had added a lot of flowers actually to the vegetable garden, like in and amongst them in, you know, in the rows amongst the plants. And a lot of them I did for, of course, companion planting purposes or like the as I pronounce calendula, I was using that for doing medicinal salves and all that kind of stuff. But it brought, and my husband even said, he's like, I really like the flowers and the vegetable garden. I'm like, I know me too. Like, how have we not done this for almost 20 years? Yeah. So it's, it is, it's definitely worth it. It's so much fun. So do you have, um, kind of like, do you have any favorite places for, cause I know like a ton on vegetable seeds, I have no problem with my favorite sites there. But when you're looking at flowers specifically. Do you have any like favorite places that you go to shop for them? Yeah. 
also a great question because remember I was talking to you about my Lowe's gardens. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, um, basically everything I did in the first year, my potache, I've had to rip out and redo. And part of that is just because tastes change, you know, and, and we grow and we develop, especially as we're cultivating these spaces. So a lot of the perennials that I thought I liked, I realized didn't get, didn't get me the look I was trying to go for in my garden. And so I did spend some time sourcing some things. So actually Tasha Tudor, that gardener I mentioned, her she's passed, but her family still does a little seed sale every year and they sell seeds from some of her heirloom plants that she grew. Oh. So I've gotten a few from there, which are just prized possessions to me because her gardens are the reason I have my gardens. Yeah. Um, but Bluestone Perennials is another great resource online, just bluestoneperennials.com. Okay. And they're perennial plants. They come in little three by four or three by three, three by four little compostable, you know, containers. And they're a little pricey. When you look at initially you look at the price, you think, well, I could get this at Lowe's for a quarter of the cost. But I will tell you, my gardens that I have started exclusively with bluestone perennial perennials are exquisite. And part of that is because you get a huge array of things to choose from. Mm-hmm. So you don't have, for example, like foxglove. I've only at nurseries, I've only ever seen foxglove in shades of kind of this candy colored maroonish pink sort of a color, which is a beautiful color, but totally not the color scheme of my gardens. So when you go to someplace like Bluestone, I buy apricot beauty foxgloves so I can get this fantastic shade of peach. And so you can really piece together your whole garden from a site like that. And then, you know, layer in some things that you can get for cheaper at low. So something like you see commonly like lamb's ear or irises or lilacs, things that they stock every year. And then really taking some time to find perennials that just make your heart sing. And it's much better, even if you go to someplace like Bluestone and you just pick out 10 plants that you want to introduce to your garden, instead of picking out 40 different ones that you kind of like, narrow it down and order those in mass. And when you do that, you're going to see your garden take shape a lot quicker and it's going to have a much bigger impact. So for example, you could buy a dozen forget-me-nots little starts and a dozen apricot beauty digitalis and layer that with like a nice David Austin rose and you're going to have an instant show that first year. Whereas if you just buy one of each little thing, you know, from all your different nurseries, you're never going to get that wow factor that you really want to have, especially with something like a cottage garden where like you mentioned the fields of wildflowers in the country, we're kind of used to seeing things a little bit more in mass because that's how they grow in nature, right? Things would all bloom at one time and you'd see a lot of them. So something like Shasta daisies, one plant alone is beautiful, but if you have 10 plants and you have a Shasta daisy field, it's just going to give you a bigger bang for your buck in the long run. So that's probably my favorite resource. And of course, David Austin roses, you have to do a plug for them because they're amazing. And so I grow his roses. He's fantastic. And you can order those online as well. Okay. Yep. Mother's Mother's Day is not here yet. I think mama's going to order in her own. (laughs) Yes, please. I'm super excited. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to go check out that perennial site. 
My favorite part toss. about David Austin is that it's from England. He's an English rose breeder. And so you can select your little, what's it called? The thing you put before your name. So miss or Mrs. Okay. I always see mine as lady. So oh. I have this big, beautiful box of roses that comes to Lady Shay Elliott. And I just oh. feel, it just feels so fantastic. I like that. You could Duchess Lady, you know, yeah. I like it. <laughs> That's really fun. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. I'm going to totally be drooling and out. Yeah. yes, stuff and getting an order placed in really super fast before it gets too late in the planting season. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited. And I'm totally, just so you know, when my husband is like, what are you doing when all these boxes show up? I'm totally yeah. saying Shay made me do it. That's fine. <laughs> That's fine. Okay. <laughs> Instagram. Hopefully it'll, it'll give him some hope of what's to come maybe. Oh yeah. So, I know I get, I get blamed for a lot of things too, which I, I think it's a good blame. I'm like, I will happily take that. Yep. <laughs> yep. yep. Totally. So, I love talking about seasons. Like I said, spring is one of my favorites just because it's the putting in of new things and change and growth. And it's so much fun, but there's always each season has its own things. And you have a book specifically around seasons at the farm. And I love one of the things that you talked about earlier. I feel the same way in gardening is just finding those little places to celebrate amongst the work. Um, and yes. to kind of, yeah, to keep our focus and remember our why and be like, yes, this was so worth it, that type of thing. So talk to me a little bit about your book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this book was born out of, you know, kind of all the things we've been talking about. First, the idea that a homestead has to be ugly because I just really pushed back against that idea. And I wanted the book to be a place where functionality of what we have a working farm. We have a dairy cow that we milk every day. We raise our animals for meat. We raise our produce for the year. But it was equally important to me that it looked beautiful, that it was an inspiring place to be and create for us and for our children. So this book was sort of born out of that idea. And so it's really a reflection on what each season has to offer on the farm and how we celebrate that in the everyday moments from what we eat to how we decorate our home to what we're doing outside to what's growing. And, you know, I think it ended up being a culmination of our real life. And as I talk about in the book, for most of us, we have these small highlighted moments in our life, you know, when maybe when we get married or when we have children or when we land the job we've always wanted or whatever it may be. But the majority of our life is just spent, what are you eating for Monday morning breakfast? What are you going to have for lunch on Tuesday afternoon? Or how are you going to spend your Saturday morning? And one of the reasons that we've worked so hard to build this farm and to build this way of life is because I think that a Monday morning when you're having a good espresso you know, sitting next to a fresh bouquet of daffodils, reading a good book on gardening, for example, I think that's just as much to celebrate as climbing a mountain or landing a backflip on a jet ski or, you know, whatever it is that you're in. There's kind of this moment every day that we really get a chance to celebrate. And this life, when you're connected to the seasons, when you're connected to the garden, to your home, you know, you have this unique opportunity to bask in that and celebrate in that and add this intentional beauty and appreciation to your everyday life. And so this book was written with the hopes of inspiring other people to see that, to see that even in the mundane February gray days, what beauty's there to behold and what, what's there for enjoyment. 
it was a little nerve wracking writing this book because we wrote it, you know, a year and a half after we moved into our farm. And I just, I told my publisher, like, I'm not there yet. Like, give me two decades to just <laughs> really flush things out. And then I'll be, I'll be able to do it. But it's, it's kind of like we talked about at the beginning about gardening. You kind of just have to be willing to just jump in and learn as you go and make it happen, you know, figure out a way to make it happen. So I'm really happy with how it turned out. I think it's beautiful. Awesome. Yeah. The, the pictures are gorgeous and it's not just pictures and inspiration though it is that, but you actually have some tangible things like on in each season homesteading wise that goes with the beauty, but that is also practical. So do you want to highlight just a couple of things that are featured in the book for spring? Yeah, I actually don't have it in front of me, but I've used it a couple times already. So something that is highlighted right now in terms of food is, would be like asparagus. So there's an asparagus recipe in the book that we wrap up with bacon and we make these little bundles and it's absolutely fantastic. So we're obviously celebrating in our food, you know, on spring we're lambing and we have baby ducks that are wandering around the potager and chickens that are sitting on big nests of eggs there's a lot of homesteading stuff going on. And then of course, in the garden, we're planting out all of our seedlings and we're harvesting our first green peas and our spinach and our arugula and we're preparing those. So it's a bustling time of year on the farm. We always say like the lazy days of summer really are a thing because we put in all the work in the spring, it feels like <laughs> going out and picking the tomatoes. That's the easy bit. Yeah. I feel like same thing, like in the springtime, we have like exactly right now, man, it's like we're hitting it hard every every yeah. weekend and, and throughout the evenings and the mornings of getting everything in. And then we have this lull period for us, which is usually about four to six weeks before everything really starts to come on harvest-wise. So you're just kind of doing a little bit of maintenance stuff. And then the harvest comes on, which is awesome. But for me, then that kicks into like full-on preserving mode. So it's a mm-hmm. different type of different type hustle. of work. Yeah. Which of yeah. course is, is the whole point of, of the seasons. You know, each season yep. has its own focus. And I do love it all though. Sometimes when you're in the midst of it, you're like, man, this is some work, but yeah, it's totally worth it. It is absolutely. Yeah. We've had to adjust our homeschooling schedule a bit because, you know, most of the world <laughs> does fall and winter and then gently into spring sort of a thing. But we've had to basically stop in the spring and in the fall. Cause those are really are just like, we are going all hands on deck. We're doing practical education today. And then, you know, during the summer when we're preserving, but it's kind of hot. So we're just lingering around inside. And in the winter, of course, you know, it's just a little bit more conducive to being inside and getting our nose in some books. But yeah, this time of year, there's, we're just outside, outside sun up to sundown. I love it. Recharges my soul after a long winter. Amen. I don't even know. I'll see if I can find the reference to the study because I've read it. But when you're talking about recharging your soul and depression, and we lightly touched on that earlier in the episode, but it's just been in my mind. It's actually, there's microbes in the soil that honestly, that scientists have discovered what I feel like gardeners and homesteaders have known for centuries, but there's actual microbes in the soil that help combat depression when Mm -hmm. our skin is in contact with them, which is just amazing Mm because when I, yeah, look at the whole cycle that God created when he made nature and the world and and us, it's just amazing to see Mm -hmm. all of that. So yeah, I love that. I think he knew we needed it. Get yes. outside, people. Yeah. Amen. Well, thank <laughs> you so much for taking the time to come on here and visit and share your flower knowledge. I'm so excited. Yeah. And, 
And yes, my Instagram feed, I will totally be tagging you when I get my order and those absolutely are going do. in the ground. You, so you can give you can give your husband my phone number and I'll <laughs> talk him off the ledge. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. And guys, we will have for you linked in everything on this podcast episode at the blog post. So you could go and I'll make sure and, and look up the websites and then some of the different titles we were talking about for the gardens and stuff. So you can check all of them out. So thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Happy gardening. Hey guys, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode just as much as I did. And if you are catching this as this episode goes live, which, hey, you want to make sure if you're not subscribed, whatever app you are listening to this podcast on right now, if you're not subscribed, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Make sure that you're subscribed so that as soon as those new episodes go live, you have them instantly there and waiting for you so you don't miss out on any time-sensitive stuff because it happens every now and then. And this is one of those. On Instagram, I am doing a giveaway with a copy of both my book, Handmade, and a copy of Shay's book. And you can go in and enter to win that. So you're going to want to go to my Instagram at Melissa K. Norris. So just go into the Instagram app, type in Melissa K. Norris, and I will pop up right in your feed. Give me a follow, and then look through the photos there on my feed to find the giveaway. And I will also post a link to the specific post within today's show notes so that you can go right to it and make sure that you get entered. But you're going to want to do so super duper fast because we're only going to have the giveaway up and going for a short period of time. Okie dokie. Now let's go to our verse of the week. That is Luke chapter 12, verse 27 through 28. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? I thought that was a very applicable verse because we've been talking about things of beauty in this episode. And lilies are one of the flowers mentioned by name in the Bible. And God created everything. But I especially love that he did create the flowers. They are one of the most beautiful gifts that he has given us. And my aim is to have more of those in my life and in my beds. And I hope it is the same for you. But they also can be a beautiful reminder. And that's one of the things I love about gardening, both vegetables and flowers and seeds and seed saving and just the whole cycle of nature is it truly reminds me of our creator and how much God loves me. And if he put that much thought into flowers and seeds and plants, how much more thought and love he has given to me, to my children, to my family, to you, to my readers and listeners, and to our lives. So the next time that you look at flowers, one, I hope you put some new ones in this year, like I'm going to be doing. And two, I hope that every time you look at them, you are reminded of how much God loves you. So thank you guys so much. I can't wait to be back here with you next week.